0: Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the Spectator. My guest this week is the journalist and historian Satnan Sangira, whose new book is Empire World, How British Imperialism Has Shaped the Globe. And it's a follow-up to his best-selling book Empire Land, which was more concerned with how British Empire had shaped Britain. Satnan, welcome. Now, can I stop asking you a bit about the inciting incident for this book? Because based on my reading of it, It seems to be that you're just really, really bad at
1: going on holiday. (laughs) Yeah, I think that goes back to being a British Punjabi. We don't really do holidays. We either go to see our relatives or go shopping. I mean, I think we went on one day trip when I was a kid to Western Supermare. But I haven't really learned how to do holidays. So uh, when I went on my first holiday after COVID to escape the British Empire, I, I kind of didn't.
0: And that was Barbados.
1: Yeah, my girlfriend booked it. Yeah, I guess the Empireland had been quite an intense experience, both positive and negative, And we ended up going to Barbados to just relax. But Obviously, Barbados was a really important phase of British Empire way before India. And I inevitably started thinking about the legacies of, of Empire there and couldn't stop thinking about it when I came back because the royal family, yeah, Prince William and Kate also went to the Caribbean two weeks later. So it was all over the news the legacies of, of what we did to the world there, and actually also that disastrous royal trip, which was considered a disaster even by the monarchist press at the time. And did you feel, thinking
0: about empire from abroad in this case, Look, there's another half of the story that needs telling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I just realised that there's a lot of things about daily life around the world that can be explained by the history. So like tea, rum. The existence of entire nations like Nigeria, Pakistan, the existence of entire cities like Nairobi, Melbourne and and Calcutta. Patterns of tax avoidance, white feminism. Also, lots of stuff that happens in the news has a direct link to this history. So at the moment, we're bombing Yemen. Of course, the East India Company were in Aden, famously. Palestine, we helped to create that situation during the British mandate there. Myanmar, Kashmir. There's been a controversy in the papers over the last week about Australia Day and I think we need to understand this history to understand current affairs. On top of that I noticed there was a big gap between the way we talk about empire in Britain or don't talk about it and the way the world understands it and I think we can't be lecturing the world as we do about what to do in Palestine and Kashmir and Myanmar without reflecting upon the fact that we help to create those situations, and also, I think we can't go around lecturing people about democracy and the environment, and human rights without reflecting upon our patchy histories on those things around the world during the British Empire.
0: Now, when you wrote Empire Land, the Princess's book, and that, you know, you talk in the early part of this book about the reaction to that. You had, you know, some really very violent pushback. Against the idea, you should be discussing empire at all, or discussing it in a in a way that was not sort of wholly positive. Did that pushback surprise you? And and where do you think it comes from? Where is what's the anxiety that causes
1: that? Do you think? And um, there was yeah, there was intense pushback, quite a racist abuse, and also just the concerted campaign to kind of discredit the book. But looking back on it now. I think it was probably 10% of the reaction. It was mo- mostly entirely positive from hundreds of schools using the book as a teaching resource. Uh, so many students getting in touch with me every week saying they're studying history now because of the book. But yes, there was an intense reaction. I think that's because there has long been in Britain a tendency to defend empire. It goes back, it's probably as old as empire itself. Also, when you're talking about empire, British empire, you're very quickly talking about race you know, you're talking about white people proudly, at least in the 19th century, conquering and lording it over brown people. And once you're talking about race, obviously, you're in the most toxic debate in the world. And so things very quickly get heated. But also, I think in Britain, lots of people have a direct link to the history in that their ancestors might have been involved in the empire as the colonizers, or they might have been colonized. And so, You very quickly get the kind of tension of the actual British Empire being played out in modern day conversations about the British Empire.
0: That conversation you say, it's become heated. It's become a kind of culture war touchstone to a large extent. In this book, you're trying to find a way round that. Can you talk a bit about what you think the way round
1: that is? I mean, you, you talk against what
0: you call the balance sheet
1: version of it. Yeah, I guess most of my time thinking about empire or hearing about it as a kid is about the question of whether empire was good or bad. So you had Jeremy Corbyn in recent years saying we should teach kids the crimes of empire. And then we have Michael Gove saying we should teach kids the achievements of empire. And it's a ridiculous way of looking at history because, you know, we're talking about 350 years of history. It's like saying, I'm going to study the climate over the last 350 years, but I'm only going to study the rain or the sunshine. That doesn't really give you a nuanced sense of what happened. And I think what I discovered with Empire World is that actually the legacies are contradictory. Whatever you say about the legacies of the British Empire, the opposite is also true to a certain degree. So without doubt, empire resulted in democracy in large parts of the world. It also resulted in instability and chaos in other parts of the world. It, Without doubt, led to environmental destruction, but it also led to the birth the early signs of environmentalism. It led to slavery, of course, famously, but it also led to anti-slavery. It led to the spread of the free press, but it also led to censorship. So I think these legacies are actually profoundly contradictory. And to talk about whether it was good or bad is a really basic way of looking at the history. It's
0: that contradictory legacy you talk about, and you'll, we'll go into a bit more detail of it because it's, you know, you're so specific and interesting on so many different areas about this, but Broadly, is the reason it's so contradictory and plural, the fact the empire was so big and that, at least to start with, communication was so slow that it sort of wasn't some programmatic thing. It was just a collection of individual outposts. And so it was sort of cock-up rather than conspiracy that it had all these contradictory effects just because it
1: was taking place in so many different places at once. I think so. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I think there was some organisation to it. But empire was different things in different parts of the world. It was also different things in different parts of the, day, of the day in certain parts of the world. So someone in India in the 19th century might have had a really positive experience with colonialism in the morning. Say a police officer might have helped them sort out a dispute. And then in the same day, they might have been experienced some hideous imperial colonial racist abuse. And you look at the lives, whole lives of people like Gandhi. Gandhi was quite into some of the philosophy behind the British Empire at one stage of his life and then obviously became empire's number one public enemy, right? And so it did vary hugely, but that doesn't mean you can't make some generalizations. Some people go to the extent of saying it varied so much that actually the British empire didn't even happen. I I don't quite buy that theory. Enoch Powell was a fan of that theory, (laughs) that it never happened, even though at one point in his life he was desperate to be viceroy of india (laughs) (laughs) well maybe it didn't happen if it didn't happen to
0: him now you start kind of which which is sort of a surprise
1: you know quite gently in the palm house at kew gardens (laughs) yeah this this blew my mind actually because for me plants are basically interior design right to understand that actually they were a major arm of british imperialism kind of blew my mind and There's various plants you could look at. I guess cinchona is one of them, which is the plant or the bark or the tree that produces quinine, of course. uh, Most people will have had it in gin and tonic. But the quinine was one of the things that helped Europeans colonize Africa. So that one plant led to major changes in the world. And then you've got rubber, a hugely profitable crop. I didn't actually realize rubber was a plant, Um, but made huge profits for the British imperialists, so much so, and British Malaya was a hugely valuable colony. And actually, we went to war to keep that colony, the so-called 1948 Malayan Emergency, one of the most brutal periods of the British Empire, which involved mass murder and torture and so on. And then you've got tea, you know, the humble cup of tea, which led to war with China as we inflicted opium upon them so that they would take that in return for tea. It led to the loss of the American colonies, the Boston Tea Party. It led to the change of the diet in both Britain and in India, led to the creation, arguably, of modern-day marketing, because tea was the first mass-market product, and it led to labour exportation around the world as these plantations were built, and people, even today, being exploited in the same way, in the same parts of the world, as the British imperialists set up these plantations. So, these plants changed the world in a profound way, in good and bad ways. Because, and you know, we should
0: make clear you weren't at Kew simply because that was where you could see
1: samples of the plants. It was also a kind of hub for this, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess we don't notice that side of it. I mean, the palm house does give you a sense of it because palm oil, of course, which was a commodity that the empire was quite heavily into. But if you go behind the scenes at Kew, there's a Department of Economic Botany there. And there you've got collections of the East India, collections of plants, the samples they used, experiments they did around the world to seed these plants. Because cinchona was originally you know, a South American crop. They had to work out how to grow it in British plantations. Tea was a Chinese crop. They had to work out how to grow it in India. Turns out it was already growing in India and it, they didn't need to do a lot of the things they did, but it's a fascinating story. <laughs> it's, it's a
0: nice little sideline there. Incidentally, a fascinating detail you had on the Malayan emergency is that it was only called... An emergency for insurance purposes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Basically, If it, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but basically if it had been called a war, I think the plantation owners wouldn't have got the insurance money. So they call it an emergency instead. That's extraordinary. And that actually helps us not to really reflect on it or understand it because I don't think many people know about the Malaying emergency in Britain, though they know about it in Singapore, right? And if you call it something like that, it kind of... I think it propounds an amnesia about some of the dark episodes of empire.
0: Now, those plants had to be grown and harvested by people across the empire. And that kind of leads you on from that to the question of slavery and indentured servitude, which are kind of two of the very sort of dark parts of imperial history. Can you tell me, first of all, you talk about a real distinction between slavery and indenture which I think a lot of people, including me,
1: would be quite kind of shaky on. I, actually, I think a lot of historians are shaky on it. It's really poorly under, understood, indenture, even by the descendants of the indentured in Mauritius. Uh, they, they themselves often call it slavery, but it was a different thing. There was a similar amount of of exploitation. There was violence. It was penal. Sometimes the indentured would have to live in the same places as the enslaved, but it was different. You know, There was some medical help in general. There were five-year contracts, if they were indentured. But it was a huge thing. So we sent three million slaves across the Atlantic you know, to work for us, to make sugar and so on. But we also, once abolition had happened, sent one million Indians around the globe to, to take their place in places like Mauritius, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And that happened over 80 years. And one of the main reasons we have a massive Indian diaspora in, in the world, one of the main reasons, wherever you go in the world, there's an Indian is because of imperial indentured labour. And I don't think that is understood at all, and often not, not by the, the descendants themselves.
0: And indenture was, as you express it, I'm understanding you right, it was a kind of, if you're like, okay, the, our fox has been shot with slavery. We need some workers now to take over. So we're going to have to come up with this sort of paid but nevertheless still semi-unfree version of it is that right
1: that's it basically but one profound difference is that you know the people who led abolition were on the case with indenture so they were constantly going to these plantations and studying it and reporting exploitation in parliament and this is why eventually and actually relatively quickly the system was abolished
0: can you also explain a bit? Because again, this was a surprise to me. A lot of the the balance sheet guys who say, "Well, Britain may have been involved in the slave trade, but not, really, not as much as America," and what's more, you know, we were the ones who abolished it. Give us some credit for that. As you describe it, the abolition of slavery wasn't as straightforward as all that. It didn't, you know, it wasn't suddenly there was one day when it was like, "Okay,
1: you're all free," you know, fly away. Make a nice home. No, I mean it was it was there were multiple stages. First of all, the slave trade was abolished and then slavery was abolished. That's two different things. And also, people weren't helped afterwards. So there was no money to set up an education system, though the enslaved and be denied education. There's not much money to set up for a healthcare system. And the legacies, I argue, continue today. You know, one of the things we do in Britain is that we go around to the Caribbean and hire their labor we, for the NHS. And I think we should bear in mind that we didn't give these territories the money to set up their own health system. So we are piling misery upon misery by then poaching their staff. And so I think there's direct legacies from that history today. There's also a thing that you, you described,
0: which was sort of apprenticeship system,
1: which seems to have been a kind of a soft continuation of slavery. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, the lobby, Michael Taylor is brilliant on this in his book, The Interest. There's an idea that Britain, out of the goodness of his heart, abolished slavery. But actually, it was fought by the plantation lobby, tooth and nail, for many, many decades. So abolition came about very reluctantly, and then they wanted it done on their terms. And then actually, indenture is an example of that. It would have been nice, I suppose, to give the enslaved proper payment to continue their work. But actually, people like Gladstone, the Gladstone family, didn't want to do that. They wanted to continue being in control. So hence, indenture, where they could continue exploiting people almost in the same way as they exploited the enslaved for another 80 years.
0: I mean, a point you also make is you couldn't keep paying the former slaves because they didn't want to work on the plantation no more.
1: Yeah, would you? I mean, yeah. (laughs) Would you want to continue in that work? there was a swift and sincere desire not to continue doing the work, you know, and it's totally understandable. Now, you also look, which
0: again, is one of the things that was surprising to me in the books, that the roots of all the things we think of, I mean, the Dickens might have Mrs. jellyby you know, the international NGOs, the charity sector, the, the people we might be accustomed to thinking of as the, the goodies in... You know, international or imperial relations, as you describe it, there's a lot more gray area there as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, it's all grays. I mean, again, I don't know much about this, but Britain has a disproportionately large international charity sector, the ing sector they call it. And that's a direct legacy of the British Empire. We interfere a lot in international affairs because we interfered a lot in international affairs through the British Empire, and we regularly have controversies about white saviors and. I think if you went back to the 19th century and called some imperialists white saviors, they wouldn't see it as an insult because that's literally what they thought they were. I mean, the civilizing mission of empire, you know, spreading abolition, stopping Indians burning their widows and all this kind of stuff, was seen as a proud byproduct of the British empire. And also when empire began to fade away, British charities kind of continued this work by hiring the same people who worked in the imperial mission to work and run, run these charities. And they often did the work of empire. So Save the Children ran schools in Malaya during the Malayan emergency, trying to convert hearts and minds to the imperial cause. They ran camps in Kenya during the Mau Mau crisis. Uh, the British Red Cross also ran projects during the Malayan emergency. And I don't think you can execrate or separate what British charities did internationally in the 20th century from what empire was doing in the 19th and 20th century. Good and bad. Is it the Red Cross that you, you tell
0: a story about that the British chapter of the Red Cross gets essentially censured by its parent organisation?
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. Like, I can't believe you're doing this. Like, But um, for me, the most amazing incident is the 1931 conference. On the African child by Save the Children. That's extraordinary. The character James Ford is he called? That's right. There's no Africans or black people, barely any black people at this conference. I think it's held in Switzerland somewhere, so they can't get there. And when one black person does speak on stage, I think it's James Ford, he is dragged off stage for criticizing the empire, which says a lot. But you know, there's a modern legacy in this. You know, there was an equivalent conference on African children. Uh, I would think, within the last decade or two, where a lot of Africans couldn't turn up because of visa problems. And so I think there's a link between that history and, and what's happening right now. And is that, you know, to put the kindest interpretation one can on it,
0: the idea that many imperialists, I mean, some were obviously straightforwardly just out for profit extraction, but but many of them did clearly have a sense of mission, a sense that they were doing good. Is that, in your account of it, I mean, a sort of internalised white supremacy? I mean, the white saviour thing that they just go, look, these people can't look after themselves. We must come and help.
1: They obviously, they definitely did some good, but they also did some bad at the same time. I mean, hunger is an interesting point because I do think the British and British Empire made hunger an international issue and did so much important work there. But also, of course, there was no shortage of imperial famines. and It's one of those contradictions where we helped reduce hunger, but also spread hunger. And for me, the best example of, of the complicated nature of the legacies with charities is with animal charities, because uh, organisations like Fauna and Flora International, still running today, set up by hunters you know, to protect animals. But they had... Shot these animals to the point of extinction in the first place, but ultimately these charities end up doing good work. So, is that good or bad? All you can say it's it's a really complicated mix, but it's a history we should be honest about. And the royal family have something to do with this, in that you know the royals are heavily involved in animal charities and animal conservation, but they very rarely talk about all the animals that they shot as a family. You know, I mean, 1961, the Duke of Edinburgh shot a tiger in india you know in 1860 prince alfred was going on massive hunts in india Twenty five thousand animals being herded for him and the products of this obviously lining some of the palaces all these furs and when the royal families talk about doing something to help these animals and conserve them i think it would help their cause if they mentioned what their own family did i mean you say
0: in the book you know that investigating this history is not about creating guilt in the generational beneficiaries of empire or those in the sort of white world western world generally there must be an element of moral judgment isn't there instinctively that comes into
1: this i think it's impossible to remove your political opinions and bias from any history there's no such thing as unbiased history i think It's one of the few things that all historians will probably agree about, right? And yeah, inevitably, I do. some of my politics do come out in this. But I do think that it's pointless talking about your feelings of pride or shame when it comes to this history. The main thing to talk about or try to do is try to understand the history. Opposite things can be true at once, you know. And I feel that our social media and our politics can't handle that. Can't handle the idea that the British Empire could both spread or result in democracy and in massive geopolitical chaos. But both things can be true. And talking about it through the prism of feeling gets us nowhere. It kind of reduces this complex history to kind of a football game where you're meant to take one side or the other. <laughs> but I refuse to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the the sort of third rails of this discussion, as you said earlier, is race. And it seems to pull together some of the aspects that are most troublesome and contradictory. I mean, you talk, for instance, you take head on this idea, which is very much touted in the balance sheet camp, that whatever else the Brits got wrong, they introduced the rule of law and everybody was equal
1: under the law in the Empire. You say that's not actually true. What I say is there's some truth to it, but it often failed. So, for example, rule of law is the idea that everyone is treated the same. I think you just said that, right? And yeah, you could definitely say that the empire sometimes did that. For example, Warren Hastings and Lord Clive, you know, one of the architects of the Raj, were dragged in front of parliament and had to answer for what they did. You had something similar with Governor Iyer. You had the slave owner, Arthur Hodge, being hung for his crimes against the enslaved. But, At the same time, you've got to remember the fact that Hastings and Clive basically got away with their crimes. When the British in India had a chance to ensure that the British and Indians were judged the same by the same judges, it resulted in a massive crisis, so-called Albert Bill crisis, where the whites in India basically demanded that they police themselves. They didn't want to be treated the same. And the law that the British wanted to be induced wasn't introduced. So I think there was often really good, sincere intentions there, but the results were distinctly patchy. Yes, you described, I mean, one of the sort of apparent goodies in the book, or what I hear is in the book, is Sir James Stephen. Yeah, a grandfather of Virginia Woolf, right? Amazing man. He once uh, had a cigar, liked it, but then, because he was so sanctimonious about things, refused to have another cigar ever again. the only time I think he ever worked on the Sabbath was to sign an abolition bill, like a great guy. And he really tried hard to introduce the rule of law and justice throughout the empire. But this was one man, you know, during a certain amount of time, trying to have an influence on on a massive enterprise that covered a quarter of the planet. So there was a limit to what this, this amazing man could do.
0: And associated with this, there is an idea... That you I think you say you know some of the defenders of empire, as it were, would say, Look, the British Empire was expressly not a racialized project on the face of it.
1: it was a self declared empire of all races and equality. they wouldn't be wrong in the sense that officially British Empire was run non racist You could find endless comments from imperialists saying so, but in reality, it was incredibly racist and it was evident through so many things from the notices in hotels where, you know, the residents were requested not to beat the servants to White Man's Burden, Roger Kipling's poem, where he basically encouraged America to do with the Philippines what Britain had done with brown people in their empire. And you can see it from the way white supremacists of the 19th century corresponded with each other between the British Empire and Australia and America and so on, and how they they all joined together to rally around certain racial crises. We nowadays think race is a modern-day obsession, right, on Twitter. But actually, this was happening in the 19th century. So something would happen, say, Japan tried to introduce a racial equality clause into the Treaty of Versailles. And you had white supremacists from around, around the empire and America all rallying to make sure that this didn't happen. Then you had worries about Asian migration, you know, in America and Australia and so on. And you had the leaders of these countries literally corresponding with each other to copy each other's policies. in the way that it happens today, in the way in which, you know, we don't get our policies about small boats from nowhere. They're often copied from Australia or so on. And the same thing was happening then. And most importantly, this is something we really struggle with as a country, I think but racial science when it emerged had a distinctly british flavour it developed into different things in america and then in germany which obviously led to the holocaust but racial science was distinctly british in the 19th century yeah well, all Francis that was huh? if you ever read the novel english passengers which i've just read there's a character there who was a racial scientist and what he does is not exaggerated i mean the absurd ideas that some certain races were born to work hard, some weren't born to work hard. And me as a Sikh, you know, the Sikhs were hugely fetishized as a warrior race. And as you know, Sam, from meeting me, there's nothing intrinsically martial about me. Uh, You you don't strike me as a warrior Sikh. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing martial about anyone, but these people really believed that there were intrinsic characteristics. And this racial science had a massive influence about on the world, and I would say it continues to influence.
0: That. Well, you suggest in the book, I mean, it's an aside, but that the Japanese were so pissed off at not being designated a white race in the Treaty of Versailles, that might have led to Pearl Harbour.
1: Well, yeah, that argument is made. History is <laughs> arguing, as you know, Sam. <laughs> people make all sorts of arguments. I mean, I guess there's a lot of dots you need to join before you get to Pearl Harbour. But, I mean, I studied the Treaty of Versailles, for a year at school, and no one mentioned this really interesting thing that happened. The Japanese tried to introduce a racial equality clause.
0: It's been kind of occluded by history. It was new on me as well. And some of the ways in which, as you've said, you encapsulated by what you say, the empire both instilled chaos and spread democracy. The ways in which it instilled chaos, which, again, I hadn't quite seen until already, was the, the sort of racialized... Divisions that it produced that you describe, you know, you say that they, you know, some races, the the Hausa in one country, the Sikhs in another, were, were seen as, you know, martial people and, you know, others were seen as harder working or more intelligent or whatever. It kind of leaves a legacy of intercommunal tension. And you do, I mean, one instance you describe is Nigeria, the Biafran War. Can you explain how that worked?
1: Yeah, basically, the British often decided that a certain race, or class in a certain country could be trusted. And often they were the class or race that took their side. So the Sikhs took the side of the British at the mutiny, right? And then they project all these qualities onto them, like loyalty and strength. And the same happened in in Nigeria with the Hausa. But then what happened in Nigeria is that you then end up getting a very racialized army, which continues into independence where... The new independent state is relying on the same racialized recruitment that the imperialists had. And so what you have is a lot of people who don't trust the law enforcement agencies. And this happened in all sorts of parts of the world. Am I right in remembering from Philip Gurevich's book that in Rwanda,
0: the distinction between the Hutus and the Tutsis was one originally made on factuous
1: race science by the colonial power? Actually, I don't know much about Randall because it wasn't ever, I don't think it was ever part of the British Empire. No, 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 it wasn't. But either. Myanmar, the races, classes there, ethnicities were classified by the British. And yeah, it's argued that the current ethnic cleansing happening there can be traced back to the way in which the British racialized certain groups. Yeah. Now, if you quote, since <laughs> he has become a
0: figure in the government to be very involved in the culture war, Kwasi Kwarteng's book, Extensively, I'm interested. Yeah,
1: this is a real surprise.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me as well. Has Quazi sort of as a word changed his tune? Is the book in in tune with
1: his pronouncements as a minister, or is it different? Well, what I should say is that Quazi's book, which argues that the British instilled chaos in Kashmir, Iraq, Sudan, Myanmar, and so on, is way more angry than I feel. <laughs> I think it's the angriest book I've ever read about the legacies of the British Empire right? He basically says that the empire was anti-democratic, which is factually wrong, because loads of studies have found that lots of British colonies resulted and ended up having democracy. So what he his position shows is just how contrived this culture war is, in that I don't think there's anything particularly left or right about what happened, about your interpretation. I think the facts, when you look at them, inevitably lead to complicated conclusions. I think people who come up with very binary points of view, often their arguments can't be sustained. And actually, John, Jan Morris is someone like this. Jan Morris probably wrote uh, one of the most nostalgic books or trilogies about the British Empire and um, influenced a huge bunch of people. But Before she died, she was asked about it and she said she was ashamed of what she would written. I do think that if you look at the facts, you will slowly or inevitably concede that what happened was very complicated. And anyone who offers a one-sided conclusion, like quasi does, is often shown to be wrong quite quickly.
0: Well, I mean, to to your credit, your book is almost 50% bibliography and footnotes. So you put the work in, like God. One of the figures you you mentioned, I mean, there are a couple of people you talk about, one of whom was known to me, but not well known. Another one I'd never heard of is Sir Oliver Jennings, who apparently seems to have had this colossal impact on world history, but none
1: of us have ever heard of him. Tell me about Ivor Jennings. Yeah, so Ivor Jennings is probably the most powerful consultant in the history of the world, because he helped loads of newly independent nations, like Ghana, Singapore, and so on, to develop the Westminster Constitution, you know, Pakistan as well. And this leads to a, a profound paradox, is that a lot of these post-colonial countries that were trying to be independent, often became independent using the Westminster Constitution. That's a paradox, isn't it? So they are doing something deeply colonial whilst asserting their independence.
0: That assertion of independence, I mean, you do say early on, you know, you talk about India's aspirations to decolonize. And you kind of say that's kind of impossible. I mean, do you think that Modi's Decolonial aspirations are, are a sort of feature of domestic politics, a bit like an Indian version of the war on woke, or the flip side of that, or are a serious and, and credible aspiration.
1: I think it's politically convenient. I mean, some of the stuff he's doing they're doing there is really interesting. So they want to start teaching medical degrees in non-English languages. They're encouraging Ayurvedic surgeons to do to cut people up. They're getting rid of, um, you know, the St. George's flag from the naval insignia. And those are all really interesting things. But I don't see him trying to get rid of cricket in India. (laughs) I don't see him trying to make people drive on the other side of the road. You know, ultimately, you cannot decolonize India. But also the way he talks, I think he talks about a thousand years of colonization or maybe 2000 years. But the way he talks about it, he, he groups the British together with the Mughal emperors. So for him, decolonization is a convenient way also to be massively Islamophobic. So it's, it's a very curious mission that they're on, on in India. But I think people in Britain aren't really aware of how big it is and how popular the decolonization mission is in India. Yeah, and probably
0: necessary if we're going to continue doing business with them.
1: Um... Yeah, maybe we should know about what they're doing and why they're doing it when we go over there and try to, you know, have trade deals. Yeah. Now, you also, you know, among the books, sort of
0: undersung heroes, you say we should all know more about W. E. B. Du Bois. What's the
1: importance of Du Bois? W. E. B. Du Bois is he's he's quite well known in academic circles, but I don't think he's generally well known. But he was just the pioneer in terms of observing race. He talked about something called the color line. Very early in the 20th century observed that white supremacy was becoming something that united all sorts of nations. And he was the first to do it. And to do it with his background as a descendant of slaves, to do it in the toxic environment that he did it in America, was quite an incredible thing. And his involvement in organizations and publications, which continue today. And he's one of the figures that I wish I'd been taught about at school, and um, we weren't. And you mentioned America. An argument your book makes is that
0: America is a sort of continuation in some ways of the British imperial
1: project. Is that right? Fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I do believe it. I know people violently disagree with that. But, yeah, the way in which America obviously separated from the British Empire in a famous incident, but the way America then developed with, you know, settler colonialism, reservations the racial segregation emerging at the same time in the same way as it did in South Africa. I think there are a lot of links between the way in which America developed in South Africa and Australia. And obviously the racism in America has a different flavor, but you can see from the way in which the leaders communicated with each other in letters and and also the way literature emerged, uniting England and America, you can see that actually there were endless parallels. Not least, of obviously, we mentioned White Man's Burden. That poem, more than anything else, shows you how one mission led to another mission and inspired another mission. Can I ask also, it's kind of parenthesis, but it, it struck me as
0: curious. You will presumably have thought about this quite hard, but for the last few years, it's become fairly standard in publishing to capitalise black,
1: used as an adjective. You don't. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. I actually don't know. You know what? Language changes. The thing that I thought a lot more about was enslaved. Because in Empire Land, right, I talked about slaves. But now, something's happened in the last few years. I don't know if you've noticed it. You don't talk about slaves. You talk about the enslaved. And the idea is that this was not something that these people chose for themselves. You know, they had it done to them. So you should say enslaved. So language changes, right? Yeah. So, and... I'm quite happy to say that. But also, I've noticed that people like to police it. So if you do occasionally say slave, sometimes you get people piling onto you saying, don't use that word, use enslaved. You're, you're repeating the trauma. And it's like, I think we need to be a bit more gentle and it takes time for language to change. But I'm afraid to say with the capitalization of black and white, I think it's probably just house style at Penguin.
0: Uh, yes, no, it might well be house style at Penguin. I've just noticed it; <laughs> it's become more and more a thing. And you know? I know some people place a lot of kind of emphasis on on you know you need to capitalize black and you don't capitalize white and so forth and but
1: um yeah i mean all these things are really contentious i mean i also use the word brown to describe black and asian people but then some people object to that because i don't think black people are really black (laughs) they're brown right no anyway this is a whole and a world of of dissent and argument. Right.
0: Well, having started in Barbados, you end because, in fact, I was about three quarters of the way through the book and I found myself writing my notes, you know, what about the Commonwealth? What the hell is that? What happened there? Um, and you, of course, get round to that, your last chapter, as if an answer to my note, said, you know, right, the Commonwealth
1: now. Yeah, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? The Commonwealth. I mean, it's a collection of former imperial states, except recent new members are not necessarily like Togo, were never part of the empire. You know, you could say, okay, there are nations that share our monarchy, except only a few of Commonwealth states actually have the British monarchy as their monarch, and it's an ever decreasing number. So what is it? I mean, Enoch Powell famously called it a gigantic farce. Nehru, when when he was discussing with his colleagues about whether India should join the Commonwealth, he said we might we might as well do it because it doesn't mean anything. So it's an organization I think that has really struggled for meaning. But I propose a solution at the end of my book, which is that perhaps it could be used as a kind of truth and reconciliation committee for the legacy of the British Empire, because these debates don't go away. You know, the royal family are really struggling to work out what to say, and they've got an organisation at their fingertips where they could actually work out and talk about a lot of these things in a in a sane way. And do you think that doing so might be helpful to the future of the monarchy? Or are you pretty relaxed
0: about the future of the monarchy. Well, I've
1: noticed that actually the monarchy are, I hate the word woke, but I think your listeners will know. Ah. I I think the monarchy are more woke than the government. And that's because they have to be, because they are answering to the British public, the multicultural society we have. They're also answering to the Commonwealth, usually multicultural, and empire is a big issue there. So they can't behave in the culture warrior way that our government does. So they have to... Think about these things. I noticed there's been a change from between that disastrous trip to the Caribbean that Prince William did about three years ago when I was there and the recent trip to Kenya that King Charles did, where he spoke lots about the toxic legacy of the British Empire with the Mau Mau and so on. So I think they're actually doing a lot of progressive work on this. And I think that reflects what's happening with our public and what's happening with the Commonwealth. And I think that's the way. Things are going, but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Well, I'm interested to hear you say that, just because one would think, on the face of it,
0: the monarchy are not as directly answerable to the wider public as politicians who, you know, have to stand for re-election every couple of years. And if, if it's the case, as you contend, that the wider public, you know, that what we label for the sake of it as woke is a very popular thing in the country at large you'd think that a war against woke would be the last thing politicians would pursue. Why, why do you think the monarchy are actuated to and politicians seem to think there's more votes in it? And I know a lot of people think, you know, well, there's certainly a school of thought, particularly among the anti-woke, that, that wokeness is a preoccupation of a very small group of
1: metropolitan liberals and troublemakers and uppity foreigners and so forth. Yeah, I don't think this stra- culture war on empire has been tested. I mean, it's basically a strategy that has been contrived in this government you know has it been tested it, the uh, opinion polls suggest that it might not work <laughs> you know if you look at the surveys of the public you know something like 3 quarters of british people think it's a good idea to teach slavery and colonialism to kids 44% of people think the royals should pay reparations that's quite a high number given we don't really talk about reparations in relation to the royal family it's not really a, a popular issue my experience on the ground is that most British people are fine with talking about this history in, and increasingly fine. And I also feel like this culture war in his, is in its last days. And I, I feel like the people who are still banging on about this stuff, like Jacob Rees-Mogg recently on, on, on GB News, even their heart isn't really in it anymore, but they're going through the motions. Satnamas Sangira, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.